welcome to the Full Capacity Living Podcast, where we talk all things integrative and functional medicine, supporting you in living your best life. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, please do on Apple or Spotify. It helps really spread the word. I also want to let you know that you can head over to KarenBush.com and sign up for emails. I don't send a lot, but I do send an email to alert my listeners about a new podcast. And when you subscribe, you will receive my cheat sheet on the top four supplements you should consider adding to your daily routine, if not already, and why. So that's at KarenBush.com. Now onto the podcast. My latest conversation is with Dr. Maya Shitrit, who is a conventionally trained MD neurologist with adults and pediatrics. And she has an incredible story of moving from the world of conventional medicine into the world of herbalism, master plants, quantum healing, and so much more. Her traditional medical training complements a very balanced way of looking at healing with indigenous master plants. We dive into the connection between physical healing, spiritual healing, the science around the gut microbiome, and master plants. She's very science-based, and her story weaves into the new waves of thinking about healing that she teaches to other practitioners. Her book, The Master Plant Experience, The Science, Safety, and Sacred Ceremony of Psychedelics, is really the catalyst for this conversation. We talk about microdosing, macrodosing, quantum dosing, her term, and to learn about this, listen to the end. Plant medicine from a whole new perspective and how we really can't separate out the spiritual healing portion of what's happening in our bodies. What she shares with us is that our physical illnesses are a downstream effect of a spiritual misalignment. She tells us about her son's illness, his seizure, and how this led her to Ecuador to a medicine retreat, which was very different than what she expected, and the learning experience that forever changed her approach to healing. So stay tuned, listen carefully. This podcast goes for over an hour. It's a beautiful conversation, and I truly hope that you find some pearls of wisdom and maybe some things that you might think differently about in your own life. And now on to our conversation. Thanks for being here. So welcome, Dr. Maya Sheetreat. I'm so very excited to have you here on the podcast. Um, This conversation is going to include a lot of things around plant medicine, but also kind of a a dip back into um, where you You started into the world of medicine and the journey that brought you to where you are. Um, I have done about two years ago, I had someone on talking about microdosing, but this really is the first, I think, um, really full-fledged conversation around psychedelics and, Mm -hmm. and maybe even I'll talk about my involvement with it because I haven't done that yet, but um, you know, just sharing about that. So So thanks for being here and let's just kind of jump in and see, you know, tell me a little bit about how you even came to medicine in the first place and Mm -hmm. your journey there. I know that's a long story, but. Um, Well, it's funny, you know, (laughs) people always assume that, um, so I'm a conventionally trained adult and pediatric neurologist. So that means I trained in pediatrics 
and then in adult neurology, and then specialized in pediatric neurology. So um, people always assume because I had this very like lengthy training that I must have been this very conventional person who <laughs> became unconventional. But in fact, <laughs> it's somewhat different, which is um, I, I went into medicine because I'd explored it. I was sort of interested, but, um, you know, and I had a mom who was very like, you either become a doctor or a lawyer kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah. So, but I, I thought I'd be, you know, a singer or, you know, <laughs> like a journalist. I was like, you know, not, not necessarily on board for that. But, um, but then I saw this special, uh, a Bill Moyer special mm. um, called Healing in the Mind. Mm. And the thing that really caught my attention in that special was, and I must've been in college at the time, um, was this little girl who had lupus and she was going into renal failure because of her meds. But when they would stop her meds, she would have a terrible flare of her lupus. So the doctors and the team didn't really know what to do and they decided to try giving her castor oil mm. orally with every dose of her meds. And then eventually they stopped the meds and continued the castor oil. And she responded as if she were getting her meds. Wow. And I was blown away by this, obviously, you know, and um, they said this is a new field of medicine called psychoneuroimmunology. And um, I thought, yes, I would go to medical school if I could do psychoneuroimmunology. That's what I'm interested in and that's what I want to do. And I wrote my essay for medical school about psychoneuroimmunology, which I don't know how they let me in, but they did. <laughs> um, I was an English major also. So I think at the time they were kind of interested in having more like diverse wow. backgrounds, right? Like people who were not just like science minds. Right. Um, but anyway, I got into medical school and then over the course of medical school, I got married and I had three kids. So I had a kid when I, you know, I had one baby in med school, one baby in residency, one baby in fellowship. And it's, and it's really like a mind control. It, it is a, it is a programming experience. And one of the things we can talk about is actually programming, because I think that is like the whole um, gift really of plant medicine yeah. and ceremony. Yes. Yeah. Both separately and together is about disrupting programming but education is a programming experience oh that's God. really yeah. what it is all about <laughs> and um you know it's not built that way but it really is and med medical training is very much a programming experience so i really forgot my my reasons for going to to med school but i did find myself excited about neurology interested in plastic brain plasticity um, you know, and interested in immunology and how that played into it, but totally forgot all of the pieces of, you know, the psychoneuroimmunology and why I actually went to med school originally, because I was parenting and giving birth and being on call and post call and, you know, you caught up um, in the world. Right. And so when my youngest son turned a year old, he actually uh, got sick and had what looked like asthma. Um, and probably had to do with mold exposure that we ultimately discovered much later. But um, 
I discovered he was, he was allergic to soy. Mm -hmm. Um, and nobody really helped me in this discovery, but finally, you know, an allergist discovered he was terribly allergic to soy and he was drinking soy milk. And I was like, oh, like he's having asthma. He's having neurologic symptoms. Anyway, all of this took me into neuroimmunology and the, no one at the time talked about the gut brain. Kind of, I mean, sure. it was like in the scientific literature, but it was not like on the cover of the New York Times type stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah. that brought me to my first book, writing my first book, The Dirt Cure, just seeing people healing in these tremendous ways by looking at food and looking at herbs. And I became an herbalist. Um, yeah. That took me on that journey. Um, and then some years later my son was seven so he's kind of i have three kids but and they all you know kids are incredible spiritual teachers but right. this one i call my muse because wow. um at about seven years old we had finally realized oh there's mold in this apartment that we lived in in new york city moved out for five months they gutted the apartment we moved back in we had gotten rid of upholstered furniture we'd gotten rid of all the stuffed animals we'd cleaned all the i mean it had been cleaned with toothbrushes, like literally tested, no mold, moved back in. And within two weeks, he had a first time seizure wow. in the bathroom that had been the epicenter of the mold. Wow. But the, the bathroom had been gutted to the studs. There was not mold in that place and not mold in that bathroom. And um, he was like, the door was locked because he was going to take a shower and he you know, anyway, it was very scary. It was terrifying. Um, and I, you know, finally he comes out and I'm holding him. I thought I was gonna have to break the door down. And I just knew with my whole body, you know, and I think people can understand that feeling of knowing with your whole body, right? It's a different kind of knowing than like thinking and figuring things out. I knew with my whole body, I'm like, I'm doing the food, the supplements, the you know, herbal support, the everything. I was doing all of the things. And I was helping people at that time from all over the world. People were being sent to me from all over the world because I was the only pediatric neurologist um, doing the kind of work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew this problem was an energetic yeah. or spiritual problem. It was, I was, I was sure this was like soul sickness, spirit sickness. It was something that I did not know how to help. And um, that really was the beginning of my journey into studying with spiritual teachers. It ended up taking me on this trip to Ecuador. It is not a linear story at all, but um, it really, it really took me out of my own, you know, it pushed me to my limits. And of course, these journeys, these spiritual journeys, and I do have an interesting little spiritual death story okay. um, that I can add to it if you want after, but um, you know, these journeys are never just about healing other people. They're, they really always come to healing ourselves, right? And, and going on this deep dive into our own, what, what needs to be healed within us, right? Which is a lifelong journey, a lifelong task. And, um, and that was the case with my son. I, I went because I never would have gone for my own healing, right? I, right. I embarked upon the journey because I was, you know, mama bear ready to go help her, her, her baby. But, Ultimately, it ended up being a journey that, you know, I ended up being uh, becoming a student of indigenous teachers, both in Ecuador and then, you know, from places around the world. Um, I was already very connected to plants and I was growing 
Uh, I started growing master plants like ayahuasca and San Pedro and others, Brugmansi and others. Um, and it really opened me up from even what I already, everyone already considered was very open, right? Very right, unconventional. Right. right. Um, it took me to a totally bigger perspective um, and broader way of, of healing and of engaging um, with life. I right, think. right. Well, it's one of those things that certainly none of us would ask for our children to have something like that happen. But when these difficult things happen, it's like, it opens you up to finding what is it that I can do with this? You know, not why me, but what do I do now? And that's what you did, right? And the it sounds like medical school was sort of just this little conventional vehicle to kind of get you in this space where you could really take some of your skills into the place that you really wanted to go. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, medical training is an initiatory experience. You know, it's as shamanic in a sense as, you know, any other spiritual kind of thing, right? I mean, you go into the deepest, darkest places of human suffering and your own suffering and you deny yourself food and going to the bathroom and sleep. I mean, it is absolutely uh, a deep dive into sacred pain and into um, the dark night of the soul in all different kinds of ways. The, the problem with that training, um, which I value very, very highly, like I'm very grateful to have it, um, but the problem is there's no container for that shamanic kind of spiritual transformation that, right. that should be happening for these doctors and healers. And so they're so burnt out and so resentful and so rigid and many times very, very unhappy. Yeah. And that is transmitted through the work that they're doing with people who are in the deepest, darkest places of suffering in their lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so medical training is, it's, a, it's, it's failing. It's failing the, the people who are being trained, the doctors and others, and it's, it's failing the patients. And I think a big reason why is because it's a spiritual experience, but no one is willing to guide people through that aspect. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, my background is as a medical speech pathologist. So mm -hmm. I work with adults in the hospital, neurologists all the time, referring to me and seeing patients. And I remember so many times that, I mean, I've had doctors actually want me to talk to a patient about a diagnosis or something because it was so difficult. It was spiritually difficult. And as a speech therapist, I sat and, and talked to my patients a lot more and I, there is a disconnect, right? There, no one is really, even social workers, that's not what they do in the hospitals. They're care, they're care coordinators now. So there is this disconnection and there's nobody really looking at that spiritual piece. And so, yeah, I, I just love the, the, the journey that you took, um, but also the awareness that you had around okay, I've kind of gotten into this like treadmill of, you know, you said working long hours, having your kids, being on call. And then all of a sudden something came and said, hey, I think you're meant for something more. Mm. And then it brought you back to it. 
So tell me a little bit about that, the training that you did in Ecuador. I think I remember hearing um, or reading something about, it wasn't what you had expected when you got there. You didn't realize that you would probably be doing some of the things that um, you did. Yes, I did not expect. (laughs) (laughs) So, so I'll tell you a little kind of um, preface, which is some months before my son had that seizure, um, I had this dream. And the dream was that I died. Now, it's already that would be unsettling, right? So in the past, I had had a number of dreams that predicted people dying, people in my life dying. Um, Once when I was 11, and it was before my father died. And then um, again, in my early 20s, and it was my brother in law, um, who was then diagnosed with cancer. So I'd had this experience, not a lot of times, but a few times, and I didn't really engage with it very much. Obviously, you know, it sounded crazy to a lot of people and eerie, you know, and haunting. So I was obviously not like, let me volunteer this information (laughs) to people. Um, And those dreams were very particular kinds of dreams. Like the quality of the dream was very different than like any other kind of dream I might have, or most of us I think would have. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm not alone in this, right? I mean, people have dreams. This is something I know a lot more about now. Um, but people, a lot of people have have dreams that are predictive or that give them really important insights. And, you know, we've said dreams are all about your unconscious, but, you know, we can talk about how that may not be all, right? right. Um, but I have the, had this dream that was incredibly unsettling to me because I dreamed I was, I was going to die. Yeah. And I won't get into the whole story of like, how did I... In, unpack that, but I was pretty upset because I had lost a parent really early and I didn't want my children to lose a parent early. And so I was like, what, how, do, what do I do? I don't know who to talk to. I don't want people to think I'm crazy. Sure. Finally, I, I got connected through a patient actually with this, um, with this medicine man, an mm-hmm. indigenous medicine man, uh, Native American, who's also an MD. And um, I was so scared, you know, he agreed to meet with me and it took me an hour and a half to actually tell him this. So he was probably like this crazy lady, why is she here? here? (laughs) And um, finally I told him and he said, okay, well, let's ask the spirits. And he lit up this big tobacco cigar that he himself had rolled. And he started laughing and laughing and laughing. Wow. And I was like, what is going on? Because I'm kind of like on the verge of tears and, you know, feeling very vulnerable. And he said, the spirits are laughing. He said, they are laughing and laughing. They said, she's not going anywhere. This isn't a physical death. No, 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 no. This is a spiritual death. Mm. She's got a lot more work to do while she's here. Mm. Mm. So silly me, so relieved, so happy, so pleased. And, you know, thinking great, phew, you know, and I didn't realize this. I went back into my email because I was like looking something up and I discovered that was just a few days before my son had his seizure. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Not even a week. He then a few days later, which was the beginning of really my spiritual death, you know, um, which, which took me to Ecuador. So I'm not going to get into all the details of how I ended up in Ecuador, but it was very unexpected. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd been interested in studying with this teacher who had done this really 
you know, she's an indigenous teacher, did really beautiful healing for me and for my son at this American conference. And she said, yeah, check my website about this. I bring trips to Ecuador to my place in the jungle. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I looked on her website which was not a website. It was not really a website at all. Okay. And it never was up to, it was like a something. And, um, and it never was updated and it wasn't updated. And I check, 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 check. And finally I kind of gave up. And then one day, months later, I check it. And the trip to Ecuador is in one week. Oh, wow. Suddenly it was up and, um, <laughs> and, and I reach out and the person who's managing the trip, which was not her, um, said there's one spot left, but you would have to wire us the money to tomorrow within 24 hours because we're buying all of the internal flights within Ecuador and we need your money and your commitment immediately. So wow. very, and they're very suddenly with really no knowledge of exactly what the trip was going to be. Yeah. Um, I signed up, I did it. And um, it wasn't because I wanted to go. It was because I felt like there was a an easy way to learn what I needed to learn and a hard way. And I had been doing the hard way for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I know that this is not going to be easy, but it will be easier than the hard way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. I went on this trip and, um, you know, I knew we were going to be learning about master plants and learning about indigenous healing practices, which is what I was really interested in, um, was how do people look at spiritual health, right? Because the the way that this teacher had explained it to me physical health was very downstream mm -hmm. in the paradigm that she understood from spiritual health so we have physical bodies mental emotional and spiritual bodies and and physical health came from being out of right relationship and that is spiritual health right so not spiritual health sounds like religious in some way it can be but it definitely doesn't have to be it's about being in good relationship with yourself with the people around you with the land you stand on and the beings of that land with your ancestors and with the invisible and i was like i would like to know more about what that looks like and how I can support that in myself and my family in my people, etc. So we go on this trip, but no one really mentions there's going to be any experience with master plants where it would actually involve ingesting, right? Like I knew she grew a big ayahuasca vine on her land. I knew we'd be learning about cacao. She had a whole, you know, area where she grew a ton of cacao. I knew we would be looking at plants because she's an ethnobotanist. I didn't know we would be actually doing ceremony and they didn't say it. Okay. They did not tell us, um, but we did. We had a few among the other things, which we did do a lot of healing practices. We learned with a lot of indigenous elders mm -hmm. um, and we had an experience with ayahuasca. We had an experience with San Pedro cactus and, um, and some other kinds of experiences. Um, and so I always say I was pulled into the world of psychedelics kicking and screaming. I definitely would not have wanted to go on that trip. Right. If I thought I was going to be ingesting, but my experience with in particular with San Pedro cactus, mm -hmm. uh, totally changed my life. I think I've actually never drunk San Pedro cactus, um, since that time, because I'm still clearly, I feel unpacking the mm -hmm. experience that I had and 
and it's still doing its work. And that um, was how long ago? Over a decade. Yeah, I think that's a really, really, really important point. And we'll put a little, you know, asterisk there as we go through this. But I, thank you for saying that, because I think that's a really important point um, in terms of people understanding really what psychedelics are and what the work is and that it isn't just something you take and all of a sudden life is joyous and wonderful. Um, it's not <laughs> right. So let's, you've got this book, right? It's called master plan experience, the science safety and sacred ceremony of psychedelics, which is a new book for you out in March. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so thank you for sharing that experience. And then like, you can share a little bit more about what you did in Ecuador. Um, but tell me too, master plants, how, how do you define master plants? So master plans, and I want to be clear when I talk about indigenous approaches that I do not speak for all indigenous people. I couldn't. It is not in any way a monolithic group. It's a very diverse group of many, many people with many diverse group vo uh, voices and ideas from around the world. Mm -hmm. But there are some commonalities um, in perspective and approach, and that's where I kind of focus my um, my words and my my attention. So master plants are an indigenous term uh, referring to flora, fauna, and fungi, right? Okay. So it's not a botanical term that means okay. just plants. Okay. Um, flora, fauna, and fungi that change or alter our consciousness and our behavior, human consciousness and behavior that are considered masters. In other words, master teachers that transmit ancient knowledge necessary to understand how to successfully be human. Mm. So yeah. mass, we talk about that, you know, when I would talk about psychedelics with my teachers, they would say, you know, the word psychedelics means nothing to them. No. Um, they don't think of them as compounds. They don't think of them as tools. They don't think of them as even necessarily medicines, although now they might call them medicina, um, but it's their teachers, their masters and um, and they see them as, as family, as kin, they'll refer to them as grandmother or grandfather or mother or father. They're, they're very revered and respected, uh, kin actually. Thank you for that, because I don't know that, um, you know, most people probably don't realize, um, how much it encompasses and that master plants, as you say, there's fauna in there. There's, you know, it's not just um, plants. It's not just the green plants that you see, you know, growing in the forest. Right. And another point is most people think when I'm talking about master plants and I explain that, oh, master plants en encompass all psychedelics. So not all master plants are psychedelic, like coffee mm -hmm. is a master plant, cacao, is a master plant. The coca plant is a master plant. They're all very powerful. They alter, right? And what will people do? How much will they go out of their way to have their coffee or to have their chocolate, right? Absolutely. Quite a bit. Tobacco, another master plant. And I talk about tobacco uh, very specifically in my book because a lot of uh, tobacco is universally around the world considered the most sacred plant by every culture that I, I studied um in doing the research for my book so these are masters um but not psychedelic necessarily 
all psychedelics are considered masters, but not all masters are psychedelic. Um, So that's just an important, an important thing to know. And one other thing I would say about master plants is my teachers never were held any opinion that master plants are always good. And that's something I think is important for us to unpack um, in the current uh, kind of climate around psychedelics, there's people who think they're only bad. And then there are, of course, people who think they're only good. And no teacher um, that I studied with felt that they were good or bad. They said they're powerful, right? They are powerful. And our relationship with a master plant uh, is determined by our relationship with power. How do we navigate engaging with powerful beings can we can we do it with respect and humility and reverence or are we going to try to control it commoditize it abuse it etc that was really an important differentiation for me yeah and there and you're right in the current climate there's that's a huge discussion around what is going to happen in because there is going to be this sort of uh, separation in the way people are using some of these master plants and some of the psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And there's an Ayurvedic way of thinking about um, you bring up good or bad. And I think about this with food as well. Um, nothing is is either good or bad. It's just when and how much, mm-hmm. right? And then the when and how much is where you find the power, right? Because the power for even food, if we take just something simple like that, you know, or coffee, right? For instance, coffee, right? Right. You have one cup of coffee, it can be an excellent way to be focused and be, you know, energetic throughout your day. You have four cups of coffee, it's going to tank you in the afternoon, and you're going to feel horrible, right? So it's a it's a matter of, you know, when and how much. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I have, I think, fairly non traditional uh, ideas about dosage that we can talk about later. And, um, and that's because of exactly that idea, understanding how we can engage the when and how much of how we can engage, um, really dictates the entire experience Mm. to a great extent. Definitely, definitely. So there's something else that you talk about in the book that um, I really um, want to kind of unpack a little bit. And that's cellular memory. And when we talk about, you know, physical and mental health and the things that our bodies hold on to, whether that's in our lifetime or even a previous generation, right? Mm-hmm. Our cells have this memory of things that that were created through experiences and not just ours, as I said, um, ancestrally. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, cellular memory is one of those topics that's both very physical, very scientific, very material, and also so spiritual at the same time. Um, And, you know, I think the right now, the idea of trauma is um, very much in the zeitgeist right everybody is talking about trauma and um you know what we know now about trauma is that it's not an experience per se that is the trauma it is the way we internalize the experience 
that determines whether it is actually trauma or not, because one person can experience something um, that may for another person be a blip. Yeah. And for the first person, it could flatten them, right? It could, it could be lifelong um, managing of what happens as a result. And, you know, we talk about ACEs, these adverse childhood events, and I can explain why it's so important childhood, right? Because um, obviously we can have lots of different experiences over the course of our lives that can be difficult, that can be terrible sometimes. The difference with childhood is that uh, there are these window periods of plasticity, and this is very, very important, very important for psychedelics as well. These window periods of plasticity in which what happens imprints itself in a way that does not happen when we're not in those window periods. They're called CPPs, critical periods of plasticity. And so during childhood, uh, big T trauma, right? The adverse childhood events, which can be, you know, uh, addiction in the family, it can be abandonment, it could be incarceration, it could be abuse of various different kinds. I mean, things that are unfortunately fairly common, um, right? And there's ranking how many of those did you experience, et cetera. And, you know, health associations, lifelong health right. associations, changing the structure of actually your nervous system all the way to autoimmunity and other things. So, the, the whole gamut, you know, can be impacted. And this is all about cellular memory, but it's not just the big T traumas. It turns out there's also these little T, right? Little T traumas, which can be being bullied or can be having uh, a caregiver not pick you up on time every day from, right? Like these things that can really, again, be um, chronically triggering to us and and actually dysregulate us in in important ways. So cellular memory is essentially, whether it's a, a physical, a mental, emotional, or spiritual kind of experience, our cells really don't care. They, they translate all of those languages, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, into cell danger. Yeah. And cell danger is a very particular term coined by Dr. Robert Navio, who is the head of metabolic and mitochondrial um, research at uh, UC San Diego, very brilliant guy. And he uh, found that there is this state of being of our cells called cell, the cell danger response. And our mitochondria in the cell function differently. Everything about the cell is different in cell danger. It is in a protection mode versus in a growth mode, right? For us to grow and develop and evolve, we need to be in that state of growth. And if we're in a state of danger, we're going to be right. We're not going to be open to the new things and be able to kind of grow in that way. So cell danger is something that basically it's the way our cells translate trauma or difficult experiences sometimes that are not, you know, the capital T trauma into physical illness, right. physical and mental illness. And the beauty of this is um, not necessarily the experience itself, but the unpacking of that and the resolution uh, of, of cell danger, um, it does require a concerted effort. It doesn't necessarily just happen. Mm -hmm. And that's why we do tend to think that conditions stick with us forever, right? Like, oh, you know, autoimmunity, you know, I have this disease and it's never going to go away. Or mm -hmm. my mother or my grandmother also had this disease, right? 
that's an example of actually epigenetic, okay, the way we our experiences determine how our genetics are read. They don't change our genetics, they change the way our genetics are read and they then change the way our cells respond and our cellular memory. All of those things are actually reversible. But the best way to reverse those is by reopening these periods of plasticity, which is possible to do in a number of ways. Um, and one significant way is through psychedelics and master plants. Yeah, yeah. That's the piece that I think is so important to talk about when you talk about the ACE score, because I remember, so I worked as a health coach in functional medicine at the Cleveland Clinic. And when we would give the ACEs score, I always wanted to talk to people and go, listen, this doesn't mean that you're going to be right. sick for the rest of your life. There is a resilience score. There are things that you can do to change that. And to know that psychedelics opens up another one of those times of neuroplasticity, that's where the healing comes in. And that's such a, a great little segue into talking about how do psychedelics heal, right? Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, so... <clears throat> One of the important things I like to bring in is just opening critical periods of plasticity, which psychedelics do. And I'll talk about, you know, kind of a, psychedelics are so fascinating um, what we do know. And I even, you know, I've interviewed a lot of like scientists at Johns Hopkins and the Imperial College of London because I've done a lot of events around psychedelics and all of them are very humble about what we what we do know right now, because they're like, yeah. we probably don't, there's a lot we don't know. Um, but, um, but what we do know is so fascinating. Um, but the one thing I'll say about these critical periods of plasticity is when we reopen them, anything can happen. Yeah. It doesn't, there's no guarantee that you reopen this critical period of plasticity with psychedelics or anything um, but we're talking here about psychedelics and that everything will heal the container. And this is where I always say the ceremony is the medicine, because whether you're in a clinical environment, whether you're in a ceremonial environment, whether you're in the jungle somewhere, whether you're in someone's basement, I mean, right. It really, really, there's no guarantee that you're, you're going to heal your trauma. You could also be re-traumatized there that's an important thing to know to be able to come back and there's literature on this i'm not i'm not the only one saying this um when you come back to an experience that you had in your mind and you held in your body and your cells literally as being trauma if you can come back and see it differently, reframe it and understand it in a more, in a way that's more compassionate to you and maybe all involved, et cetera, you can, you can release so much of what you're literally holding in your cells and your epigenetics. However, if you're just opening a period of plasticity and you don't have that kind of support and container and preparation and all of the things you actually can literally re-traumatize yourself. And I have seen this, um, there's sort of a, it's in vogue now to say there's no such thing as a bad trip. You know, you get the trip you need or whatever. Yeah. I think that's not true. 
I, I think that's so gaslighting. I think there are people who have terrible experiences sometimes that they feel worse, much, much worse afterwards than they did to begin with. I don't think that is the most common thing. Um, and I think the reason that the de decriminalization process and the medicalization process is not going as rapidly as we might like has to do with requiring a container, not just for the experience itself, but for the health coaches and the MDs and the nurses and the first responders and the clergy and the right, so that there can be actually a, an infrastructure right. that supports reopening these critical periods of plasticity responsibly and gently mm -hmm. so that uh, we're not causing harm where harm could be caused. It could be, right? It doesn't, it isn't the usual, but, um, but vulnerable people, people who've been through trauma, who have been through difficult experiences, who are ill, you know, who are medically fragile, right? The people who, for whom psychedelics may be incredibly important um, for their healing, pivotal, we want to make sure the container is is opened in a really safe, loving, gentle, responsible way. So important, right? Because, and I think what you're also saying, so you're talking about like the 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 preparation part of it, right? You can't just jump in and, and go and do it, right? There's preparation, there's, and from what I understand is that those who who have the most meaningful experiences are the ones that have opened up a little bit before they've even had the experience, figuring out what their intention is, but, but talking about it, talking about what might happen, what you want to have happen, but also not having expectations, but being open to what comes and not, not pushing it away, but really being open to that, but talking about that in the beginning. And then you're talking about the setting, like, like how do we support this person as they're they're going through this experience and um, the people who are doing the experience being prepared as guides and and understanding uh, you know how powerful the medicine is and then moving through even after that right because it isn't just this experience you have and then you go home and everything's different you still have as you said this is where we're going to bring that you know little asterisk back in you did ayahuasca 10 years ago and you're still experiencing some of the changes and the growth and everything from that because you know that that's important to dig into, right? It's not about, I need to go and do it again. It's, I need to really kind of dig in and integrate what I experienced and bring that into my day. And how do I change my behaviors and who I am? You know, absolutely. I mean, and I'd even add to the pre- you know, the preparation period, let's say, some things like what we know now about the microbiome oh, right. and what we know about, right? There are, there are like nervous system regulation going in with a nervous system that is totally, you know, uh, dysregulated and um, sympathetically kind of uh, imbalanced, that's gonna make the experience much more painful, right? And if we think about like over the course of history, millennia, 
you know, the people we know, for example, and this is stuff I, I talked about in my first book, The Dirt Cure, um, we know that, like, for example, many indigenous people and in studies have exponentially more diversity of their microbiome in their oh, school than, you know, those of us in kind of the developed, quote, unquote, right. said with a big pound of salt. Um, <laughs> those, those of us in the global north, let's say, um, you know, so, so just and and of course how much and i saw this when i've been you know in ecuador and i've been in indigenous um communities and learning you know the level of connection to the earth and to nature and to food and to the beings around them are so different and so regulating it doesn't mean life is simple life is easy and we're all humans and we all have to navigate being human but um there are things I think in terms of preparation that are are not even really being explored very much that I've been, you know, I teach in my trainings, but um, I think we're going to really need to unpack more about physical preparation, nervous system preparation, um, as well as yes, all of the other pieces that you that you brought up and um, and yeah, like, of course, for me, one of the most profound and challenging aspects of guiding people uh, from an experience into back into their lives. Like, what is our offering? When we get this gift from these masters, right? We're not supposed to be going back again and again and again and again, necessarily, mm -hmm. right? Like you're not, you know, you go to see the most ascended spiritual master, let's say, and you get this like beautiful piece of wisdom. You're not going to like come and knock on the door the next day, the next day, the next day, necessarily before you integrate that first gift. They're going to say, well, hey, I gave you this. Or have you, how have you like incorporated that into your life? And so for me, my real um, passion I would say is about how do we bring the extraordinary into the ordinary, right? How do we integrate these experiences into our, our everyday life so that we're living these incredible teachings that have been transmitted to us by way of these masters? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I think too what you're you're talking about from from my perspective, but also the functional or integrative medicine piece of it, is all of the lifestyle factors that we pay attention to. They ground you. They get you to a place where you're you're more connected with the present day when you're slowing down and you're you're paying attention to your nutrition, but you're also um, you're getting good sleep and you're you're not being exposed to as many toxins anymore because you're doing things that are um, cleaner, right? So so all of those practices get your microbiome to a place where it can accept the medicine and maybe, you know, just like food, right? Do we Can we absorb our nutrients from the food if our gut is not healthy? Do we absorb the, the powerful plant medicine from a physical perspective? Do you, is there anything that you know, any research right now about the gut microbiome and changes that happen with psychedelics? And yeah, I mean, we're starting to see some of that literature coming out and I, I present it, I actually teach it in our professional training that we have, um, you know, for, for psychedelic informed practitioners. So there is, um, and, and, you know, of course it makes sense, right? Like 
so many, not all, but many master plants uh, are, would be ingested, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and there's, you know, vomiting, there's nausea, there could be diarrhea. There are things that actually make it very clear that a lot of the action, as always, right? A lot of the action is happening on the level of, of the gut, of the digestive system. And, you know, we didn't end up talking about the um, mechanisms that we understand around psychedelics. One of them is actually related to serotonin. And um, this is really interesting research that came out really just this year. So of course, we've known for a long time that one of the um, action points in the body is the 5-HT2A uh, serotonin receptor. Okay, it's a serotonin receptor. We all mostly, I think, have heard of serotonin. Um, and, you know, we make serotonin. We make our own endogenous serotonin, hopefully. Yeah. And, you know, many people take SSRIs. Obviously, that's not causing people to have psychedelic experiences on the regular. So yeah. people were always like, there's more going on, obviously, but what? Right. And this year, uh, a paper was published that showed that we don't just have most receptors for neurotransmitters are, are on the surface of the cell, on the cell membrane, right? So kind of the neurotransmitters like floating around in our little, you know, imaginary body uh, system, right? It's floating around, it lands in a receptor on the surface of the cell, it binds, and then that receptor basically takes the action internal, right? That's how we kind of think in a really, 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 really basic way about what's happening. Turns out that there are intracellular serotonin receptors that are on the inside of the cell that our serotonin doesn't hit. It doesn't cross the cell membrane very easily based on its structure, um, nor do SSRIs, but psychedelic compounds, um, you know, I don't usually refer to them as compounds, but in the context of science, um, psychedelic compounds do cross the cell membrane and can bind these intracellular Wow. Uh, serotonin receptors. So one of the ways we understand that there's action, just because we know there's a lot of serotonin also released by the gut um, as well, right? So serotonin is an important uh, part of this process, but these receptors are different. They're inside the cell and they have different actions and, you know, to be determined and discovered exactly right. how they work. And, you know, but what we know is they do something different. And that, of course, makes sense. And of course, very cool, too, um, because we know another way that psychedelics work is through this compound DMT. Mm -hmm. uh, DMT is actually very richly found throughout nature, uh, not just in you know what we would think of as psychedelic plants. And not only is it found in many plants, but it's also found in the central nervous system of animals and humans. We ourselves make DMT. DMT is a psychedelic compound, considered a psychedelic compound, and it's an endogenous psychedelic compound. We ourselves make it yeah. in tiny amounts. Um, DMT, it turns out, among other things, among many other things, binds to a uh, receptor called the Sigma-1 receptor um, that I think explains a lot of why we're seeing a lot of physical healing, like miraculous physical healing, um, as well as, you know, some mental health uh, resolutions. The Sigma-1 receptor is actually um, very connected to the endoplasmic reticulum and the mitochondria. 
And it basically, DMT, when it stimulates that receptor, acts as a really potent antioxidant, mm. like profound. It's very important for chaperone proteins, how proteins fold. Um, the sigma-1 receptor is a very, very interesting receptor. I think we're going to hear a lot more about it in functional medicine and in general. But um, it's responsible or thought to be responsible for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, autism, um, uh, macular degeneration, cancer, um, chronic pain, like you name the intractable condition that we poorly treat in our society yeah. today, right? They call these diseases of civilization. The Sigma-1 receptor um, is responsible. And so DMT stimulates that particular receptor. So probably we're going to learn a lot more on a, on a cellular and you know, receptor level, right. what psychedelics do, which is really going to be, I think, very exciting. Um, and why I actually think that microdosing may end up being for many people, for the mm -hmm. greater population, let's say, yeah. um, the way a lot of people are going to end up engaging. Yeah. And I do think there's so much research going on right now. And, and hopefully maybe you can send me a link to that, um, that paper that you talked about. I'll put it in the show notes because I mean, that's one of the things that happened at the psychedelic science conference this summer in Denver. I mean, so much incredible research. I mean, more than you could, any one person could be present to listen for, right? I mean, there's so many different tracks that they're, they're working on. The, the question I have about that though, too, is the, sort of the difference between the the substance that they're using in the, the science part of it versus the, you know, indigenous or the, the people who are potentially even growing mushrooms for their own use, right? Or for retreats or whatever they're doing, right? There's, there's a difference there. And so what would you say the difference is? Because you talked about connecting to the earth and getting to that place and that spiritual piece of it. And when you think about the science around it and something that's created in a lab and we're doing the science around it, there's definitely a distinct difference. What? Tell me what you think about that. Well, so I'm an herbalist as well as an MD. And I always think that, right, like we have this, I think the cannabis movement kind of brought in this sexy term, the entourage effect, right? Like <laughs> the whole plant has more potency than just the CBD or the THC when it comes to cannabis. And, you know, the entourage effect is like definitely like more racy than, you know, yeah. what herbalists have been saying forever, which yeah. is the whole plant matters. The whole, right, right. it's right. it's a whole being and it, and, and in Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, you know, there are always these ideas of within the compounds of the plant, there could be the strongest compounds doing what we think we want. And then other compounds that are weaker that are supporting that. And then there are other compounds that work against it, but prevent, you know, maybe negative things from happening. And I use the example of like, you know, uh, white willow bark, which is sort of an aspirin like uh, plant that um, if you take aspirin, it just can destroy your stomach lining, yeah. but white willow bark actually is used to heal 
stomach issues, um, <laughs> as well as having the aspirin effect, right? Because of the complexity, it, yeah. plants are beings. They're as complex as we are. They're older than we are. They know what they're about. And we think we're like with our little human hubris are going to like find right. one thing, you know? And, um, you know, sure. when I was at a psychedelic um, conference that wasn't MAPS, um, there was a a researcher there who was talking about these periods of plasticity. And she said, you know, we talk about, right, there are all these compounds now, tech compounds, where they want to have ayahuasca without the vomiting, or they want to have, you know, the, the mushrooms without the tripping, right, this kind of thing. And she said, you know, some of the compounds that are the most um, enhancing of plasticity, that open plasticity, are alcohol, mm. cocaine, <laughs> heroin right i mean in other words and these a lot of these are derived from master plants right the opium poppy um right like the coca uh when we came not in a respectful way and we thought we knew better than these complex ancient teachers they really are ancient that right. is not controversial right, right. I, mean, I call i have a whole chapter in my book about the science of plant consciousness and mycelial consciousness mm -hmm. People can decide whether they think that's controversial or not. I do not think it's controversial, but as far as how old plants and mushrooms are, you know, we are babies compared to them. Right. And um, we can run it. She said, you know, we can run, we might be creating the most addictive yeah. substances yet to be seen mm -hmm. by trying to engineer these compounds. Like we're playing with fire in other words. Yeah. So, um, so I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, even in my book, I was calling the mushrooms psilocybin mushrooms until I realized like these are psilocybe mushrooms and psilocybin is actually one of the compounds, right. That are, um, that are found in the psilocybe mushrooms. Um, but I don't want to talk about them in terms of their compounds, uh, right. Right, unless right. I'm being very intentional about that. Right. Yeah. So yeah. yes, absolutely. There are limitations in research. Um, people in research get very agitated when you talk about the whole plant or the whole mushroom, um, because that's not how a lot of research works. It's complicated. They don't like that. They need the simplicity uh, of a compound. And right. that limits what we know, because we're not, you know, we're not Petri dishes and plants are not a compound and so we we're trying to control uh the the environment and learn things but it has nothing to do really it with the fullness of of what we experience in our physiology and in our environment yeah yeah fullness i think that's a really good term for it right because it's expansive and there is this this thing that that we may never really know because you can't break it down. You can't do the reductionist sort of scientist thing right. and, and go, okay, this is the one thing. No, it's never the one thing. It's, it's like looking for the root cause in functional medicine. It's often not just one thing, right? It's multiple layers of things that we're, we're looking at and you can't just kind of pull them apart and just tackle each one individually. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk, you did, you, you mentioned the word microdosing, um, which is very she-she right now. The New York times writes about it as, uh, you know, mother's helper. And so, <laughs> I know, I know. Well, I mean, the word is getting out there. So let's talk about macrodosing, microdosing. Um, and I also want to talk about 
Is this your term, quantum dosing? I love that. And let's talk about that too, because that's something I didn't really think about. But I, we've all experienced it, whether we want to pay attention to it or not. But let's talk about those terms. Sure. So macrodosing is, I think, what most people think of when they hear about psychedelics, right? They think, okay, a trip, right? Yeah. I'm going to have this like big experience. It's going to take hours. I'm going to be out of commission. That is what a lot of the research is looking at right now. Um, and there are reasons for that. Um, it's sort of associated, more associated with a mystical experience, um, which is a big part of the conversation about why psychedelics are thought to be actually so effective. Um, in the research community in the psychedelics research community. And um, so that's taking kind of more of a bigger dose and having this very altered experience for a period of time. I want to just add, which we kind of talked about, but I always say explicitly every study that's been done showing benefit from macro dosing mm -hmm. uh, has support, professional support before, during, and after. None of those studies are I did this on my own. It doesn't mean that it can't be beneficial, but it always has support. Yeah. Um, microdosing is what we call a sub-psychedelic dose. Um, it does not mean you're not altered, but you are totally functional um, if it is a microdose for you. Uh, yeah. Some microdoses are, are high for people who are sensitive. So it's always important to know your microdose. Yeah. Um, but microdosing, you should not be altered. You should be able to go do carpool, go to work, you know, get your groceries, whatever things you can function and operate in the world. You may feel a little altered. Some people feel a little euphoric. It's probably why they're calling it mother's little helper. Um, you know, I think for people like going through perimenopause, I've seen it be very, very helpful. Um, so there's a lot of ways. Uh, right now, the studies are less than the macrodose experience and my understanding of why, because I did discuss this with um, uh, Albert uh, Garcia Romeo at Johns Hopkins. And basically the reason he said, it's just harder to study it because um, of legality. And, you know, if you're having a big experience, you can prepare before you can, you know, integrate afterwards. But for the experience itself, there's like a limited amount of time you come, you know, you're going to spend the day at the you know, clinic or at the hospital having this experience in research, right? right? But for microdosing experiences, you would be sending people out into the world. Nobody, you know, who's not altered can spend every second day, third day, you know, et cetera, sitting in a hospital feeling perfectly well and not altered at all and just be like, okay, you know, so yeah. they can't send people out in the world with them. Well, um, I think... James Fadiman has done a little bit of just um, self-report kind of there thing. There is. Yeah. I mean, yes. that's that's the information that I've kind of looked at. So yeah, yeah, the research is out there. It yes. is. It yeah. is out there. Exactly. That kind of um, and we do think that microdosing has um, probably benefits that are different, in fact, than macrodosing, right? The body is not like always a more is better kind of um, being right. Our, our bodies sometimes lower doses stimulate receptors that, um, in larger doses won't get stimulated in the same way and won't have the same kinds of actions. So that's very interesting. And, um, so microdosing, as I said earlier, I think will end up being probably 
where people are going to get a lot of bang for the buck. I do microdosing coaching with people. I've seen really tremendous benefit and shifts um, with things like addiction, with autoimmunity, with chronic pain. And of course, it's just like depression, anxiety, you know, childhood trauma, um, all of the things. So I think, you know, so that's its own category. And most commonly, um, you know, I get into this obviously in a lot of depth. I have a whole chapter on dosing in my book, but um, most commonly people right now are microdosing with the psilocybe mushrooms, right? With the magic mushrooms in, yeah. in small doses. Um, so quantum dosing is uh, actually, it's vibrational doses of these plants. And, you know, I have a whole story of how I kind of came upon this because um, it was not where I thought I would be going coining this term, but, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, so I grow master plants. I grow an ayahuasca vine. I grow San Pedro cacti. I grow Brugmansia, all of these different plants. And that is part of my service. My, my reciprocity is to tend these plants. Um, and I find that I learn a lot in that process. And, um, they, they kick my, they kick my ass is what I would say. They're, they're tough. Um, it's not just like, oh, I sit and water these plants. Like there are this, it's a whole experience, a whole expectation. Um, and one day I was caring for them and, um, I heard this, I could only call it like, I heard this message, which was, um, why do people think they need to ingest us in order to experience our medicine, show them another way. So this was many years ago, many years ago now, and I was uh, bewildered, <laughs> taken by surprise. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I did integrative medicine. I've worked with homeopathy and flower essences sometimes. Like I was familiar with all of those um, different modalities, but um, I didn't think that that's exactly what that was, and I wasn't sure. And I you let it unfold because, you know, life and because I didn't know. And um, ultimately, you know, I started realizing when people would reach out to me about um, microdosing, sometimes their lives would have already started to totally transform before they ever ingested. And sometimes they never ingested, but we would have this conversation and they would already, I could see all these big things that you would normally have expected would come along with ingesting master plants, or I would have assumed. So that was very interesting because I saw the relationship began before the ingestion, significantly before sometimes. So is this, do you think it's because of some, you know, people are doing some work before to really like get intentional and think about, no, it was just sort no, of randomly. Not, these were people who were just curious. I mean, they weren't like, oh, I'm doing all this inner work, et cetera. Ah, um, and I think, and then I, I actually also um, realized there's a precedent for this vibrational approach. Like, as I said earlier, the people I learned with the ayahuasqueros and the others, they did not actually think that the right? They were like compounds. Oh, psychedelics. Why do you, you know, what is that? Like, these are spirits. You're working with the spirit, the mother of the plant, the spirit of the plant is who is doing the medicine, who's doing the healing. And, um, you know, anyone who's been in an ayahuasca ceremony will know that these ikaros, there are these songs that are sung by the ayahuasquero, by the maestro. And um, those songs are not considered songs that the ayahuasquero 
came up with or composed when they diet with the plant, right? They have this intensive experience learning and being with these plants. They're given these songs and the songs are considered to be vibrational transmissions of the medicine that are equal or greater in potency to drinking the plant. So the the ikaros and anyone who's heard ikaros, yeah, they make you they can make you throw up, they can make you cry your eyes out, they can make you feel like you're calmly coming back into your body. They're medicine. They are very impactful, um, and they're considered direct transmissions from the master. So vibrational medicine from master plants is a very long-standing concept and it's considered to be like i said equal in potency and i've seen myself some of my teachers just sing ikaros take a little bit of ayahuasca ingest a little bit of ayahuasca themselves but not actually give ayahuasca to anyone else to drink and the people have the ceremony and they're crying and they're having these healing experiences because the transmission is considered so potent of the ego well, energy that that person is sharing. I mean, we all like, as, as we go back to like the quantum idea of energy and the connection between the, the vibrations and energies of the universe of the, of us, of the plants and everything. When you get to a level that you can connect with that, that's fabulous. That's unbelievable stuff. Oh yeah, my God. Okay. It's so powerful and potent. So, of course, I felt, you know, in the process of how do I show people this, right? Um, You know, because for me, you can wear, right? You can wear like an ayahuasca slice. And I do have an ayahuasca slice necklace. Um, That is a way to experience a quantum dose. I put a picture of an ayahuasca slice actually on on the cover of my book. That is an ayahuasca slice. Nice. That's a quantum dose, right? You are... You see that and it and it you feel something in your body yeah. from that visual. Tending the plants is another way to experience that. Um, and ultimately what we did was we created um, me and these plants that I grow, mm-hmm. um, that I've had a long relationship with, um, these drops that are what we call ceremony in a bottle. So they're made with the medicine songs I've gotten from these plants. And actually the vibration of the oscillations that the the plants actually give off, there are devices that measure it and turn it to music. And we created these vibrational doses um, of master plants. And um, I wasn't sure what would happen because I'm, I was a neurologist, you know, I mean, I'm an unconventional neurologist, but I wasn't that unconventional. Right. And, right. Um, you know, the last thing I want to do is go touting around some, you know, wacky <laughs> thing that doesn't help people. Thank so, you know, I worked with my students. I worked um, at like, you know, I use them at retreats with people's consent and um, because they're legal, they're gentle, but it turns out very transformative. Like wow. I can give you an example a very recent example, actually, in just the last few weeks, I had this doctor who he took them, he decided to buy some and and he didn't really, he's like, I don't really understand it, but I'm just going to try it. And I'm like, okay, you know, and he saw me the next day. He said, I took them last night and this morning. We were at a conference actually. 
and he said, I don't, um, I don't know if they did anything, but you know, I feel really good, really calm. I'm connecting with great people. So that's good. And I said, yeah, great. He said, oh, and also, um, I, I, I built an altar to my father this morning who passed away many years ago and I bowed down and I prayed to him. Wow. And I was like, oh, I said, do you do that often? He said, no, I've never done it before. Hmm. And I said, oh, like he said, but but I'm actually he he's he's Chinese. And he said, but I'm Chinese. And that's part of my culture to to pray to ancestors and to make altars. That's totally part of my culture. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm all about building an altar and, you know, connecting with ancestors. I was just curious if you'd done it before. Do you have an altar in your home? He said, no, my home doesn't have anything like that um, in it. He said, but I just I thought I wanted connect to my my father my ancestor who passed away and so i i found a spot in the room and then it was the couch so i thought no i have to move it because i shouldn't put it where people sit so i i put it in a different spot and then i i just created this altar and and it was he said yeah i was very connected to my lineage wow so <laughs> stories like that you know yeah. Yeah. we hear all the time this really you know one of the things i think psychedelics and particularly master plants offer us is um along with ceremony is this need that we have as human beings that we've always had um to connect to something greater than us right that sense of of the mystical this the enchantment um if you look at a lot of studies about the benefits of psychedelics they bring in the mystical have if a person had the mystical experience they said you know they showed these benefits um that mystical experience is something that i submit we we need as much as we need healthy food and clean water and fresh air and exercise we need the mystical and when we don't have it we live in this state of existential loneliness yeah. And that's one of the things I talk about in my book, right? Like we're kind of these existential orphans and we don't have a sense of rootedness and connectedness to place. That is what comes from our indigeneity. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that master plants can offer us macro, micro, quantum is that sense of connection to something greater than us, that we are not just in this material space and time linear world but we're in something much more multi-dimensional and and we live outside of time and space as well as inside of time and space and it helps us operate better as human beings yeah yeah no i i am absolutely connected to that idea i think um you know psychedelics it's it's an uh it's an imperative for us to really share this. This is why I'm doing this podcast, right? I mean, I've worked in the traditional medical world and I work with a lot of physicians. Not all of them know that this is something that that I've done, but I feel it's a moral imperative to share this with people because mm -hmm. I just, I'm so, so deeply um, committed to knowing that that it, it bring, we could bring world peace right? I mean, opening people up and getting getting connected to something that is greater than them. When we get too close to our ego and we're, we're paying attention too much to that and we don't let go and open up and get grounded and connected to what that universal energy is, I think we get lost and there is a big disconnection right now. I mean, it, we feel it everywhere. 
I mean, I would love to think that psychedelics could bring about world peace. Um, I don't think, <laughs> you know, a lot of a lot of what um, is written about in and and discussed in master plants in indigenous communities, there's a lot about sorcery. And I think it's so interesting because obviously we in the global north are very, very uncomfortable with the concept of sorcery, um, very. And um, and yet, if I look at how people in power engage with anything that they can use to kind of dominate and program and, you know, the propaganda and the different things, it is like kind of what the definition is of sorcery, right? It's like yeah. exactly parallel. So I think there is like a, a modern way we can understand that. Um, and master plants, right? Going back to they're not good, they're not bad, uh, they're powerful, right? I think I agree with you that we have, they have so much potential to help us heal. And you know, what I talk about is moving from us versus them to me and we, right? Mm -hmm. That we're all connected. And when some person or beings are, are suffering, we're not okay, right? The rest of us are not okay. We pretend, we think, we ignore, we, but, you know, and I felt this from being a very little child and like walking past people who are homeless, mm -hmm. sleeping on the sidewalk, like I could not wrap my head around, little Maya yeah. <laughs> could not wrap her head around, like how can we just walk past these people and think everything is fine right. and it's right. not fine. And um, so I think there's so much potential for us to open yeah. and, and as a society become more connected and not tolerate a lot of what's happening both in that way and in people from people in power right who are abusing power whether they're right like i bet many world leaders have done psychedelics <laughs> i bet many billionaires have done psychedelics it has not necessarily made them nicer or interested wow. in pursuing world peace per se right 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 well maybe they needed somebody to really integrate more with them <laughs> So what I'm going to do is I'm going to connect or I'm going to in the show notes, I'm going to put your um, your website because you have quite a few different programs people could go through, which I think are phenomenal. Also a link to the book so that people could get that. Um, what I mean, tell me like, you know, how people can connect with you, but also what are your parting thoughts? Just, I mean, this has been such a great conversation. I'm so excited to share this with people. Um, but I just want, is there anything that you feel like we haven't talked about that maybe we should share? I mean, I think we touched on a lot of things, obviously, you know, I wrote a whole book about it. So I feel like I can talk about it pretty endlessly, but I think we hit on a lot of the really important points, which is just, there's, I think, a lot of potential here mm -hmm. for us to heal and not just, you know, our depression, anxiety, physical illness, which are uh, really need attention and healing, but in fact, something that is bigger, more, more communal and more societal. Um, and it's going to depend on how we approach 
and comport ourselves and how we operate and our expectations and the way that we come with humility and reverence and respect, not just to the plants or compounds, um, but I think also to the places they grow, also to the people who have been custodians of this knowledge and this wisdom for at least hundreds of years, if not millennia. Um, So I think it's a really exciting time with a lot of possibility. And I hope we can rise to the occasion. I hope so too. Great parting words. So again, thank you, Maya, for being here, Dr. Sheetreet. This has just been a great conversation for me and hopefully for the people who listen to this. Um, Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I felt like I learned so much through that conversation that I really wasn't necessarily aware of. Our inner work, um, the curiosity that we need for that, mystical experiences, but also knowing that this is a modern way to connect with the deeper humanity. I love that piece of it. So thank you for listening to the end. Again, if you really enjoyed this, share it with someone, um, hit subscribe, share the podcast with people. It really gets us to um, be accessible to more people. And that's really the reason for me doing this podcast is to share this information for free for people out there. Right now, it's, you know, everything is is um, available to you on this podcast. And that's the way I want to keep it. So I appreciate you being here. And until next time, stay well. <laughs>